0: The Animals, love letters between Christopher Isherwood and Don Bacardi Presented by Catherine Bucknell Simon Callow as Christopher Isherwood Alan Cumming as Don Bacardi Music by Edmund Jolliffe, With a special appearance by David Hockney If you like this podcast and think more people should hear it, please rate it, review it, and subscribe to it. Episode 6, David Hockney's Giant Portrait.
1: Around the time he offered his London flat to the animals, David Hockney started a painting of them, his second large double portrait. The first was of the art collectors, Fred and Marcia Wiseman. On April 4th, 1968, he wrote to Don in London, I am thinking of doing another giant portrait of Chris and you, like this. He drew an arrow pointing to his sketch of two figures seated side by side with a space between them, like monarchs on their thrones, or actors on a stage, with the flat plane of a coffee table in front of them and a window like a void behind them. He enclosed a bundle of 20 photos of Chris and Don taken in their living room on March 30th, two days before Don left town, some showing the same pose, others showing closer views of their faces and expressions. In his biography of Hockney, Christopher Simon Sykes says that Hockney was fascinated by the relationship between Chris and Don. He and Peter Schlesinger were seeing a lot of them at the time, and Hockney worked up preliminary drawings based on the facial expressions with which he grew familiar. Let me quote Sykes. Whenever he asked them to relax, Isherwood would always sit with his right foot across his left knee, looking at Bacardi, while Bacardi would look straight at Hockney. That gave him the pose and the story. In this case, an older man's worries about his much younger lover. But I think that's only part of the story. It's a domestic scene as indicated by the bowl of fruit, the soft pillow on the window seat at the right, the windows behind shuttered for privacy, two men at ease in their living room, and the viewer is inside their world. The colors are pale and fresh, the light clean, with a quality of purity rather than anything the least bit shady, nocturnal, debauched, or even secretive. The surfaces are spartan. The composition is stable, anchored by the piles of books. It's a confident, luminous portrayal of a same-sex relationship. And it's 1968, a year before Stonewall. The banana and the ear of corn may seem like jokey phallic references, but that ear of corn was there on the table for years till a rat ate it. The room looks just like this in real life, although there is a little more daily clutter, and nowadays, many paintings on the walls. The wicker chairs still sit in the very same position, as does the glass-topped coffee table and the soft pillow. These were two men who already knew how to present and how to represent themselves. They were artists in their own right. (laughs) ¶¶ In his day-to-day diary, Chris records for April 20th, 1968 that he had lunch with Hockney and Peter Schlesinger, and that after lunch, Hockney showed Chris what he had done so far on the portrait. Otherwise, Chris doesn't comment on the painting in his diaries or day-to-day books, nor does he mention any sittings. This is a striking omission. Chris posed all the time for Don, and whenever Don painted him, Chris wrote in his day-to-day book, Don Painted Me. Don does all his portraits from life, and he asks his sitter to look at him as he starts a portrait. He does the eyes first, and there is something very intense that happens in that initial exchange of looks. Anyone who sits for Don is highly conscious of doing so. Hockney mostly worked on the double portrait alone in his studio, using the sketches, the photos, and his memory. In 2012, he told me that Isherwood often came and sat for him that spring, 1968. But Peter Schlesinger told me that Hockney—and I'm quoting him—painted mostly from photos at that time. Paintings of me were mostly photos, Schlesinger said, even though I was there. Schlesinger also recalls that when Hockney was sketching from life, quote, he would ask you to pose— If Chris had felt he was posing, he would have recorded this. He does record meeting, talking, sharing meals, seeing films, going out to hear music with Hockney and Schlesinger all through this period. These two couples, four individuals, were actually all observing each other very closely, all the time, very affectionately, but very closely. Were Chris and Don an inspiration to Hockney and Schlesinger? Did Hockney see something in the Isherwood-Bacardi match that worried him? Even though Hockney is three years younger than Don, he identified with Chris as the older man in the partnership. Just a few years later, as Hockney's relationship with Schlesinger began to break down, Chris was to fret in his diary that Hockney was making mistakes with Schlesinger that he himself had made with Don and that Hockney ought to give Schlesinger more freedom. In January 2014, I asked Hockney why he chose to paint Chris and Don. He told me that he admired them. He said it very quietly. Then he went on. What made you decide on them?
2: Oh, I admired them. Uh, 1968, I you yeah. I painted it in a... Not very big room in Santa Monica, on 3rd Street. I have an apartment across the road, up, up some stairs that's still there. That was when um, Don was in London a lot, actually.
1: And then he was only supposed to go for a brief time and he just kept on not coming back, yeah? Yeah.
2: Well, I didn't really know what was going on. I didn't know what was going on. Uh, I do now, but... uh, Mm.
1: uh, Well, they're all very open about it now. I mean, for years Anthony's name was concealed in various books about Chris, but he was fine with it. We just published a volume of letters, he said, yep, you can put my name in. and. So, what is this painting? This is about two people who are going through, actually, a really interestingly difficult time. Which you... ...clearly sensed, or actually, maybe you knew, Chris was telling you.
2: Well, I found out slowly, a bit. Um, I mean, I, I, I didn't think that much of it at the time, because... Uh you, you, you work, didn't make phone calls between London and L.A. in those days, 1968. Uh, it was letters, letters.
1: Of all the times to paint them. Because thanks to Hockney's generosity with his London flat, Don wasn't around during April and May to be painted or even looked at over lunch, and Chris was growing sadder and sadder about his absence. How on earth did it feel to Chris being the lone subject of a double portrait? Is this why he wrote nothing at all about the portrait? Did the portrait seem like a hex, like hubris? He was thinking deeply about the subject because at this very time he himself was painting a double portrait in prose of his mother and father, Kathleen and Frank. His parents were a love match, and they were very close, but Chris's father was killed in the First World War, so their time together was ended abruptly. He was painfully conscious of what they had lost. On June 10, 1968, Don got home from London. On June 11th, Hockney and Schlesinger photographed him so Hockney could finish the painting. And the next day, Hockney himself left for New York and then London with the unfinished canvas rolled up in his luggage. But now the relationship between the animals was about to change again. They were about to become professional collaborators. With Don home, they turned in earnest to finding something they could write together. Chris himself had been collaborating on writing projects since he was a schoolboy, and he loved doing it. Now, when erotic energies were flowing away from him, securing the bond with Don by creating something together was politic and smart, as well as promising to be absorbing and entertaining. It wasn't the first time they'd worked together. About a decade before, they had made a stage adaptation of Chris's novel, The World in the Evening. They called it The Monsters. After showing a draft to Dodie Beasley and to Cecil Beaton in 1959, they decided not to take it any further. Before that, Don had haunted the theaters and tried to write a play by himself, the very first time he was alone in London in 1956. Don possesses just the sort of obsessive temperament suited to the intensely communal and temporary interaction of staging a play. In the spring of 1968, he wrote to Chris again and again about how absorbed Page was with his directing work. I think he wanted to enter Page's world more completely, not just observing and drawing the actors, but creating the drama. I don't think this was simply in order to get Page's attention. Being immersed with Page, Osborne, Jill Bennett, and the others in time present might make anyone ambitious to join in. Chris and Don rejected the French thriller suggested by Page for a film adaptation, The Praying Mantises. Instead, they decided to adapt Chris's novel, A Meeting by the River, for the stage. Here was another kind of double portrait. Brothers, who might even reflect two parts of one personality. For Chris and Don, the struggle between the good brother and the bad brother, and the question of what is real and worthy had special personal meaning and was well worth bringing to life in a new form. They began on July 12th and continued hard at it all summer. Don was determined to pull his own weight. After a month, Chris wrote in his diary,
3: Don is very much on the alert to prevent me from attributing ideas to him, which I have actually had myself.
1: In October, Don returned to London and to Page carrying a copy of their stage script, A Meeting by the River. Page's production of Time Present, starring Jill Bennett, had transferred from the Royal Court to the Duke of York's Theatre in mid-July, and Page was now preparing another Osborne revival, Look Back in Anger. He summoned Don to draw the cast again. Hockney and Schlesinger were now living in the flat, loaned to Don in the spring, and Schlesinger was a special student at the Slade, just as Don had been seven years earlier. Don, at last, got to see the double portrait which Hockney had been continuing to work on in London.
4: October the 11th, 1968, London. Adored Hyde. Kitty had tea with David and Peter yesterday in the sumptuous, newly and completely redecorated Hockney studio. My breath was almost literally taken away by the transformation. I had consciously to check my praise, realising I was making the place as it was when I stayed in it sound like the sty that it most certainly was. And it is now so neat. Peter is really making his presence known, and quite visibly, too. They could not have been more adorable, really almost animal-like sweetness. I felt great affection and happiness between them and from them. In his studio, David had the painting of us, on which he is still working, After the preparation provided by you and Antony, I was not at all horrified by the likeness of me, which really does seem quite a likeness now. I think he's been working on it since either of you saw it. In fact, the figure of me is in grave danger of being overworked. Otherwise, I very much like the painting. Peter has started at the Slade, likes it, but is not overwhelmed by enthusiasm. He says he just goes and draws. I'm seeing them again on Saturday. Robert Medley is giving a party. Anthony is very possibly going to Dublin to see a production of a play by a friend of his, Tom Murphy, at the festival there on Saturday. I don't think I will go, not wanting to get onto a plane again so soon and preferring the Medley party to Dublin. Anthony, if he goes, will be back on Sunday for dinner with David and Peter, who are cooking. I am up early this morning to say my prayers and call Tony Richardson and go off to the theatre for an early sitting with Victor Henry. Jimmy Porter. Anthony is still in bed. Tony, who can only be reached at this hour, apparently, was very friendly and invited me for a drink on Sunday, but I must call first. I asked if I could see any of his new film, Laughter in the Dark, and he said, maybe later. He is post-syncing now. I still have not mentioned our play to anyone. Kate Moffat had asked Marguerite for my number here, so maybe they are not cross with me. Anyway, I have called them and left a message. Must fly out now. I think so much of my old dear in his stall. Please keep him well. Kiss, 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 kiss his devoted tabby.
1: Page told me recently that Hockney had asked him for photos of Don when he was working on the double portrait. Evidently, the ones taken in Santa Monica in June didn't suffice. Once Don returned to town, Hockney was able to see him for real— He was also able to see him together with Paige, which Chris never did. Hockney told me a few years ago that Don nearly stayed with Paige. Maybe this is why I see something hectic and unsettled in the way he painted Don's face, as if Hockney himself was affected by the wobble in the relationship, or by something unpredictable. Paige told me, though, there was no chance of it being the nearest thing to breaking up their relationship. I had, wrongly, allowed something to start that I didn't want to continue. Hockney said nothing to Paige until the affair was over and then told him, you really put Chris through a lot of suffering. Paige felt that, among their circle, only Gavin Lambert understood the triangle between Chris, Don, and Paige. And that was a great relief, Paige told me, for Paige looked on the ruin of his friendship with Chris as a tragedy. A few years ago, I had the chance to see the double portrait. I was with Don. We were given tea in delicate porcelain cups with tiny raspberry tarts from a gilded three-tiered caddy like the ones at the Ritz. Juggling all this and trying to smile without letting crumbs fall from my lips, I swiveled my gaze from our hostess to the painting as often as I dared. Isherwood turns towards Bacardi attentively, and Bacardi looks out at the viewer, or at the painter. Half his face is veiled by shadow, and his expression is charged, almost like with electricity, but it's somehow unrevealing. It's frozen in a state of excitement, unreal, as if Don were conscious of being a gorgeous object, a magnet for attention or a source of energy, self-conscious even. Chris's more relaxed posture conveys natural human feeling, and his head, even though we can't see the whole facial expression, implies a capacity for private commitment and understanding because it turns entirely towards his beloved and thereby dismisses everything else. The painting has come to be looked on as a seminal public image of a successful gay relationship, and part of its interest and power derives from the way it reflects the threats to that relationship. Perhaps the painting also played a role in preserving the relationship by institutionalizing it.
3: Tuesday, October 15th, 1968, Santa Monica. Treasured flufftail. Another dear pussogram arrived this morning. Drub could hardly believe such good fortune. And to think that Puss finds time in the midst of his quick dartings to remember that loving, anxious old Plug away there in his western stable. That makes Plug very happy. I'm so glad that David and Peter are so happy and nice. I take it that our portrait hasn't been sold to the Tate? Do they have any idea where it will land up? Hope it'll be in London. At any rate, I don't want to have to make a pilgrimage to some obscure provincial gallery. Nothing from our agent Robin French. I called him and he didn't call back, so I suspect he hasn't read our play and is guilty. Fuck him. But really, love, I now am certain that it is good, not only intrinsically, but even as it stands, and I don't care. I feel just as i usually do about my books somebody will like it and it will be performed somehow so let us risk a little disapproval all this is not to say you should show it in england if instinct tells you not to do exactly what you think but don't ever have doubts about the play in itself this afternoon i'm going to see elsa lanchester and ned hoops about their book about lawton have produced a specimen chapter in which the material from the taped interviews is presented, mostly in a quite unnecessarily journalistic way. Charles taught me everything, says Shelley Winters, drawing her Chinese robe about her and dipping greedily into the candy box. That's not a real quote, but it's how it is, exactly. He has such a vulgar little mind. So point this out, but tactfully. Now I'm going to the gym, resolved to be a good little Vedantist and see if I can't relax towards that woman who keeps coming in, because it isn't her fault that she makes me sick. The funny thing is that Bob Register, whom I may or may not see again, if I do it will only be a quick stop by at Mel Carney's where he's staying, told me an identical story of how he'd been enraged because they brought some women into his gym in London, something to do with television, and how he came out stark naked and refused to put on his clothes until he was good and ready and the ladies had screamed. But the gym manager could do nothing because he was in the wrong. Bob is really even more aggressive than I am. And where does it get one, really? Really? Angel, love, I had such a terrifically vivid dream of you this morning at exactly seven. You were absolutely there, but at the same time, I knew you weren't. You were sort of sliding away from me. It was terribly painful, and you didn't really want to go. But then I woke up. Don't ever slide away from old Brumby, because his kitty is his all. D. D. X, 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 X.
1: In his letters, Don continued to play down any domestic harmony with Paige. But the animals were so close and knew each other so well that even from 6,000 miles away, Chris sensed how potent was the connection with Paige. He was anxious in ways that he only half articulated. In fact, Don needed Chris's support as he struggled with his London romance and tried to decide what to do with the script of the play. He was too proud and too clever a strategist, both personally and professionally, to offer the play to Paige or anyone else who was unlikely to pay it serious and empathetic attention. But he guarded his treasure so closely that he began to kill off his own enthusiasm, and he felt increasingly reluctant to put himself forward as a playwright at all. On October 12th, he wrote to Chris,
4: I've lost confidence in showing anyone a meeting by the river with my name on it.
1: When their agent, Robin French, finally did read the play, he pronounced it perfect. Chris tried to buoy up Don without pressuring him, letting go of the idea of showing it to their London stage friends. On October 16th, he wrote,
3: Love, you say you will tell me more about your feelings with regard to showing the play with your name on it. I suppose you mean just in England. Well, I can't argue with you until I hear what you say. But I do think we're going to have to take some sort of plunge, at least as soon as you get back here. But I repeat, if you decide not to show it, or admit to anyone that you have a copy with you, that's entirely up to you.
1: He didn't know yet that the day before he wrote, Don had finally told Tony Richardson about the play, and was already writing home for advice about a next step. Richardson was involved in a complicated feud with Page about an actor called Nicol Williamson, whom Page had discovered and made into a star in his stage and film versions of inadmissible evidence. Page planned to direct Williamson in Hamlet, but Richardson hijacked the project and went ahead without Page. Richardson won Williamson's attention by using him as an emergency replacement for Richard Burton in another film he was making, of Vladimir Nabokov's Laughter in the Dark." In those days, Burton was a huge star, so, of course, Williamson was flattered. Wednesday, October
4: the 16th, 1968, London. Dearest treasured Trot. His third adorable missile arrived this morning, hoof-written with that aching hoof, the thought of which makes Kitty wince for his old darling. Such a demonstration of devotion brings tears into those great eyes of Kitty's. I saw Tony last night and told him about the play, Though he was interested and thought it a good idea and was impressed by all the work you've been doing lately, he did not ask to read the play. Should I ask him to read it? Let me know what you think. He was very friendly and amazingly relaxed and communicative. He said he would maybe let me see a showing of his Nabokov film on Tuesday. He is pleased with it, though he says it can't make money or be popular because it is so black and uncompromising. Nichol Williamson, he says, is wonderful in it. Tony is now planning a film of I, Claudius with Williamson and is going to do at last a Ned Kelly film based largely on a script by John Arden written years ago for Carol Rice and rejected by him in favour of a script by David Radcliffe. Sporting Life Story, which Tony says is dreadful. But before either film is the stage production of Hamlet, which Tony says he has always wanted to do. He still thinks movies are much more fun and wouldn't be returning to the theatre except to do something he's dreamed of doing always. And Nickel, he says, is ideal casting. I suspect that part of the reason for Tony's warm and private reception for me might have been his expectations I was bringing some kind of message from Antony, or some inside gossip about Antony's agonies. I said nothing, and the only reference Tony made to the affair was right at the end of our interview when I said I was going to hair with David and Peter both of whom Tony is very fond of. Knowing full well that Anthony would probably be with us, Tony said, why didn't we all come round after, as long as we didn't bring Anthony? I told him Anthony was indeed coming. Well, said Tony, and even he himself was unable to resist laughing slightly, I won't have him in the house. Very typically, Tony has, I can see, decided that it is he who has been misused and betrayed by Antony. No word from Tony of his forthcoming marriage, but then I didn't expect there would be. There is maybe going to be a male evening tomorrow night to which I'll be invited if it happens. I think I'm considerably a more desirable guest in Tony's house now that Tony knows I'm staying at Antony's. Tony can underline the fact that Antony is unwelcome. Tony has not dared to ask me anything about my relations with Antony, but that too, I'm sure, makes me a more eligible guest. Tony hopes that Antony will get jealous. Antony, in fact, and it is to be said in his favour, makes no objection whatsoever to my seeing Tony. Quite the contrary. He too is eager for news of the other side. David and Peter are spending the weekend at Tony's place in the south of France, all expenses paid, including plane fare. They're both excited by the occasion. We saw them at dinner last night. Antony, at the last minute, couldn't get tickets for hair. Along with Patrick Proctor, who is just back from Morocco with his love, Gervaise, not at dinner. Nick Wilder, Ron Katai, and girl. I was glad to meet Katai. There is something defensive, evasive, and self-protectingly square about him. He's going to be in LA in January and February, so maybe we will see him. I got to speak very little to Patrick, but he seemed his usual self. In the street after dinner, he put his arm around me in his usual fulsome way, a kind of mock gesture of pseudo-friendship. After being very difficult for several days, Anthony has suddenly become much nicer and more relaxed and easier to be with. A relief, since I was regretting having come, due in part to his behavior and in part to my usual reaction against arriving anywhere except the cusser. But Kitty still loves his dear muzzle best, and always will, and misses him and worries about his falling into disrepair without Kitty's daily tune-ups. Kitty is helped by knowing the deer is getting his run on the beach and even a dunking. Kitty will return soon and get him back into tip-top working order with eternal love and devotion. Puss boots.
1: Don wanted to be noticed in his own right and for his own talents, but he found it hard to believe it when he was. Richardson, by the way, was bisexual. He divorced Vanessa Redgrave in 1967 after they had two daughters. He never married again, although he had another daughter with a long-term girlfriend. He surely did enjoy exploring the effects of his triumph over Page in the way Don describes. But it seems likely he was also fond of Don. Don expresses real surprise that Richardson was friendly and communicative. In fact, he describes himself here and also in other letters as if he were not really present, a ghost or a medium through whom others interacted and whose desires and intentions were somehow more real than his own.
4: Friday, October the 18th, 1968, London. Adored love rump. Farrier is sitting up at table, dressed to his tiny teeth in his new blue-gray Swedish suit, waiting for Marguerite to arrive. We're having lunch at an Italian restaurant on the Fulham Road called San Frediano, I spoke to Rosamond Lehman today, who is dashing to, Rosamond, dashing, let's say gradually moving towards the Isle of Wight for the weekend. I said I would call her on Monday to know if she could have lunch with me one day next week. Also spoke to Leslie Caron, who was nice and invited me to dinner next Wednesday. She recognized the telephone number I left yesterday as Anthony's and invited him to dinner too. I suspect he may be a large reason for her cordiality to me. A dear little calculating French mind could hardly fail to take into account a smart young director about town. Anyway, they already know each other slightly. I doubt if Antony can come because Look Back starts previewing on Tuesday and Antony says he will have to see it every night till it opens. Later. Marguerite was very sweet and talkative and even wound up liking the restaurant, I think. One thing helped, another of our film director friends, John Schlesinger turned up there and came over very friendly and I introduced them. Marguerite said later in very respectful tones, he's so talented. So I gather she was impressed. John looked very well and tanned, said he was leaving tomorrow so he wouldn't be able to meet. Marguerite was full of Jackie Kennedy's marriage, which was announced this morning. What she had heard was that Onassis was Lee Radziwill's friend, and supposedly Jackie and Lee always want what the other has. Marguerite said I was the only one she'd talked to this morning, and that's a distinction of some kind, I guess, if only of numbers, who'd been in favor of the marriage. Kitty can't help being prejudiced in favor of May to September matches. In fact, Kitty would surmise a 30-year age difference is just about right. The papers here say she's 39 and he's 69. Had drinks at Tony's last night. Neil was there, and an assortment of males, mostly mixed bags, with one or two sweetmeats, one of whom looked exactly like Liza Minnelli without a nose job. Tony made rather a point of lolling over his end of the sofa, especially after I told him I thought the boy much the best of the bunch. Tony also did this naughty thing of whispering invitations to dinner to the selected few in front of the definitely unselected majority. Even I got an invitation, all the more pressing once I'd refused, most certainly because Tony guessed I was having dinner with Anthony. He would so love to have been able to spirit me away as well as Nicol Williamson, if only for the evening— Even Neil started in to persuade me in his famous, high-powered, unctuous, mephistophelian manner. Kitty was firm, not because he especially wanted to have dinner with Antony, but only because he knew why he was wanted. And anyway, they were only going to play bridge after dinner. Tomorrow, Kitty goes to Cobham to draw Mrs. Gibbs in their 16th century house. He is looking forward to working again, And so looking forward to hooking his claws into that old hide again. With heartfelt cat kisses, firkin. Kiss, 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 kiss.
1: Were Chris and Don's friends really so lacking in interest in persons other than themselves? So lacking in basic human kindness? Was Don missing something? Or was he seeing more clearly than anyone else? Maybe these ulterior motives were the most real thing about some of their friends. was 18, Don had been by Chris's side no matter where Chris went, no matter whom he met, talented, famous, anonymous. Some took an interest in Don for his own sake, but the vast majority were interested in Chris. What Don had learned through all those patient, observant years when the animals were physically together was that to most of the people they socialized with, he was not really there. He took this with him when he ventured out into the world solo. He was barely able to believe in his own existence, let alone his importance. Yet, and perhaps because of this, he'd learned to see right underneath everyone else's skin, the thoughts they hid even from themselves, which hovered just below consciousness. This shows in his paintings. He sometimes explains that as he paints, he is impersonating his sitters, For the span of a sitting, he watches so closely that he gains access to an internal chemistry. His biggest act of impersonation was his impersonation of Chris himself. In voice, manner, and taste, steadily and unconsciously perfected over the decades. By 1955, the year Don turned 21, he had already picked up Chris's English accent and didn't recognize his own voice on a tape recording made with friends. Later, in the 1970s, he and Chris were using a tape recorder when working on a script together and they discovered that neither one of them could tell their voices apart on the tape. But Don is not a reincarnation of Chris. He is very different. For example, as a diary keeper, he kept a diary regularly, only when he was living with someone else. He told me that he was of little interest to himself when he was alone. To Chris, though, he was always of interest, and he knew this. He was confident that he fully existed in Chris's eyes. There was no one Chris wanted to talk to in the way he wanted to talk to Don. No matter how much time they had together, Chris never stopped wanting to hear what Don had to say. When Don had left for London and Anthony Page in the autumn of 1968, Chris had written to him with a mixture of seriousness and camp.
3: Thinks of his darling all the time. The constant dialogue with him goes on. What he would say to this or that, how he would react. Breakfast seems not worth fixing, and even the few steps to the deck are a drag, but Dobbin has great style and appears because, after all, we belong to our people, and seeing that life goes on in the casa helps them so much in the miserable existences they lead in their squalid huts.
1: The animals' private lives were more real to them than anything public. Nevertheless, Chris was determined to set a certain public example. When Hockney painted them, he could only suggest all this. And the unreality of Don's face perhaps reflects the reality that even Don himself did not know who he was.
0: The Animals, a selection from the book, The Animals, love letters between Christopher Isherwood and Don Bacardi, presented by Catherine Bucknell. Simon Callow as Christopher Isherwood Alan Cumming as Don Bacardi Music by Edmund Jolliffe. With a special appearance by David Hockney If you like this podcast and think more people should hear it, please rate it, review it, and subscribe to it. Join us for Episode 7, Unfinished Work and Unfulfilled Duties. Meanwhile, you can hear the trailer for A Meeting by the River at the end of these credits. The Animals Podcast is produced by Catherine Bucknell and Shani Erez. Recorded in London at the Rhythm Studio with James Carey and at Heavy Entertainment with David Roper. Post-production by Toma Run. Editing by Catherine Bucknell and Shani Erez. Website by Zenabi Purvis. Podcast conceived by Joe Rodota with Catherine Bucknell. We would like to thank the Huntington Library, San Marino, California and the Wiley Agency. Don Bacardi, Catherine Bucknell, Penguin Random House and Farah Strauss and Giroud donated rights for this podcast, which is underwritten by the Christopher Isherwood Foundation. Special thanks to cast and creatives for donating time to this podcast. Copyright Don Bacardi, Catherine Bucknell and The Animals Podcast 2017.
1: World War II, Christopher Isherwood, a pacifist, spent a year in a California monastery before deciding that he couldn't take vows as a Hindu monk. 25 years later, he published a novel about the continuing struggle between his two selves, the man who craved spiritual illumination and the man who craved the fulfillments of the world. A Meeting by the River is Isherwood's daring, ruthless, and joyfully comic meditation on the question of whether God exists. Two brothers confront each other in a monastery beside the Ganges. One plans to renounce the world. The other tries to stop him.
3: Oliver, how lucky you are to have a brother like me.
1: Dominic West stars as Patrick, irresistibly charming and accustomed to success. Patrick, why are you
0: going to Calcutta? know why he's doing this.
1: Kyle Soller is his younger brother Oliver, committed to a path of anonymous devotion.
0: God is
4: either nowhere or everywhere.
1: Penelope Wilton is their mother. If this new religion of yours is any good, why don't you use it to help me? Who is right about love? What does it mean to be saved?
0: Are you going to
4: tell him about us? Are you
3: mad? He's a monk. Don't monks know the facts of life? They try hard to forget. Oh,
1: Patrick! Directed by Anthony Page. Adapted by Christopher Isherwood and Don Bacardi from Isherwood's last novel, A Meeting by the River. Join us for the culminating episodes of The Animals Podcast.
4: Sooner or later, you might have to ask yourself
3: if there wasn't some truth. In what I believe. Considering your way of life, wouldn't that be a bit inconvenient?
1: Listen online at theanimalspodcast.com and follow us on Twitter at Animals Podcast.